Lucky you. Best 36 holes in golf. You tuned in to Alternate Shots Podcast. Barney's Army. Where we talk about golf. Barkies, Sandys. Poker. Bond. James Bond. Horse racing. I'm all in. Great movies. Alfred Hitchcock. We have no script. And down the stretch they come. We're glad you joined us. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. (laughs) (laughs) Whoop. Let's start again. And the Cubans. Oh, I like the Cubans. They are so wild. Welcome to our podcast. Today, we're going to go a little bit outside the lines. Uh, We have a special guest today, Alvaro Saralegui, who's a giant in the media world. Alvaro Saralegui came from uh, Cuba in the early 60s when I got out of there in the nick of time from everything I learned as a kid. Uh, And I believe you were like four or five years old when you got here, Alvaro? Yeah, I was uh, four years old. How did you get from four years old escaping from Cuba to loving golf? That's, <laughs> that's a long trip, right? That's a circuitous route. Yes. Yeah. At Sports Illustrated, Friday afternoons, you were to take clients out and play sports with them. You know, up to you. Basically, it was tennis and golf. And I played some tennis and I was curious about golf. And that it was the dominant sport among uh, the folks at Time Incorporated, not to mention Sports Illustrated. So I ended up, you know, trying to pick it up so I could entertain clients, et cetera. The other factor was my father-in-law wasn't a great golfer, but liked the game and was a member at Winkfoot. He would invite us over there. And I had heard that it was a pretty good track. Probably got several of the members angry with the slow play. Between those two, I ended up becoming a huge fan of the game. We launched um, a, a separate golf edition in the magazine. And I was the publisher at the time with uh, the editor's name was Mark Mulvoy. And it was a huge hit. I mean, it's not fair to compare Donald Ross to a tilling ass or a Siwanite or Wingfoot. But would you be willing to stake 10 of the best putters at Siwanite against 10 putters from Wingfoot? Play a course somewhere, a few holes at Siwanite and a few holes at Wingfoot and see who comes up the winner? If the uh, if the Cybernoid guys were allowed to drink before the tournament, I would... absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Let's do that one, Billy. That 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 might have the all the earmarkings of a great little inner club event. So this picture goes back to 1964. You were in America four years because I think I saw that you came over, quote unquote. Your mother said you were going to Miami on a trip. My family, because it was uh, my dad and his his brother and my, and my grandfather. They had uh, the largest trading company in Cuba, and it was big for all of sort of Latin America, despite this, you know, Cuba's size. And they had large clients, mostly American, because of the proximity to the U.S. So people like Pepsi, International Paper, et cetera. They were, you know, it was quite successful. They ended up buying the company and other magazines. And before you knew it, they were one of the largest publishers in in Latin America including a magazine called Bohemia, which was the uh, news magazine. It came out of Cuba, but distribution throughout the, uh, all of South America. 
And um, it actually outsold, I think, Time Magazine two to one. But unfortunately, it's also a news magazine. So we were covering the political uh, upheaval in Cuba. And my uh, father was asked to, well, he at first was pro-Castro, uh, the person who was uh, running uh, Cuba at the time. Uh, was you know viewed as more or less a, a gangster. Uh, no one really cared for him. Enriched himself and whatever he could do um, for himself, or sometimes to placate the United States because the U.S. had a huge role in everything Cuba did. He would. So eventually, the people had had enough. The U.S. had had enough. And when Castro came, tr you know, tried to uh, overthrow the, the the government and and did so successfully. Uh, I was viewed as a as a positive thing. Um, however, in very quickly, we started to realize that he was a totalitarian more than a communist. I mean, communism, I think, in some ways, was uh, something like a a badge he he picked up along the way uh, to help in, uh, fuel the relationship with Russia, which was obviously a communist country at the time. And the idea was that he would need Russia because the U.S. eventually, like my dad, turned sour on where Castro was taking things. They, you know, we started privatizing um, or taking taking back private, uh, like farms, agriculture, a lot of other things that, but started to come down hard on the press. Um, at one point, uh, my dad tells a story where he was brought into the government offices, and they he had they had written a a very tough editorial about Castro and the guy put a gun down on the desk and said uh, we want you to stop publishing this he goes I, I'm not in charge this is what my dad said my father is who at the time conveniently enough was in San Sebastian uh, in Spain were ba Basque heritage so they called him and they said he explained the situation he goes what do you want me to do he goes essentially screw them keep publishing <laughs> so no, no. And he he's a whole nother podcast. But I mean, he was an orphan, moved, uh, left his, the orphanage when he was 12 to become a man came in Argentina and uh, didn't succeed, came back to Cuba at age 14 and ended up uh, being a truck driver, ended up buying the trucking company. And from that launched the trading business I just described. So he was a, uh, an amazing guy. Well, they, it's genetic. They, they do not like to be told what to do. It's genetic. <laughs> it's genetic. And we haven't he even heard about his mother's side of the family. Yeah. Don't, I'm don't sure know. that's where the predominance of these big genes come <laughs> from, right? Don't get her started. But but they but just to go, I'm, I'm trying to make sure I don't leave a loose end that after this altercation with the government, and then there were all sorts of things where the we were obviously a well-known fa family. My mother would be out like going for a walk with we had she had she was 27 and had five kids um taking the kids for a walk and the neighbors throwing stuff at us from you know from their apartment buildings and and obviously the pressure was on and the my father wasn't sure what to do uh che Guevara was named president of the bank in Cuba che Guevara by the way was a a doctor from Argentina or I think he's from Argentina, but anyway, he was a doctor, not not the guy you want running, you know, what's the, the equivalent of the Federal Reserve for them. So at that point, my father, and my grandfather said, you got to get out of there. 
Uh, the CIA was interested in our taking, starting the magazine, this news magazine, again in the United States because it had it was about to be nationalized by Castro. So we left as if we were going on vacation. Hence, you know, when you mentioned earlier, Bob, that uh, we were just going on a trip to Miami, it was viewed as a vacation, not a lot of luggage because otherwise it would tip them off that we were, you know, going into exile. Coming back, yeah, right. And then my dad stayed behind, had a party, invited Castro to show his loyalty. And two weeks later, got a, a fake passport from uh, the the U.S. government and escaped uh, to the U.S. And um, we ended up trying to decide where to live. We thought Bronxville looked like a nice place, good Catholic uh, minority <laughs> in a very waspy community. And um, he launched the companies all over again in New York uh, with some funding from uh, the CIA. Getting hit in a bean by a rock from your neighbor. <laughs> yeah. I think the next thing your mother did was call the travel agent. So that's a tell. And then, yeah, I well, my memory is interestingly from Cuba, where when in 1961, when after Bay of Pigs when um we knew we were not going to go back because at that point we we still thought it was just a temporary thing once it became clear that that was not the case i decided i better memorize my memories because i'm never going to go back there again so i had like seven to ten memories from cuba that i made sure i i never forgotten to this day i when people talk about what it was like i i'll mention or not necessarily what 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 it was like, but what do I remember? I would break that question into two parts. One is, you know, what did the kids, what were the kids thinking? And then two, what were the parents thinking? The kids, uh, we were completely brainwashed. So we thought Castro was great. When we would see an, uh, a helicopter go by, we were instructed to wave because it was probably Castro. Exactly. And uh, that was just, you know, you know, at, at age five and my, my, uh, brother or four or five my brother was seven or eight um, that's what we would do hmm. uh, but I remember distinctly being um, I think it was Rockefeller Center or so there were all the flags or maybe at the UN but it, we had just arrived in New York from Cuba and a helicopter uh, you know flew over us and I waved and said hi to Castro and my mother <laughs> said don't you ever I mean they had some friends who were in the army that helped bring Castro to power who were then executed. One of the things Castro was trying to do was he needed more tractors. And it just shows you a little bit of the, the kind of guy he is. He would allow us to bring back prisoners of war in, in, in return for tractors. So he was trading yeah, human lives um, to help get his economy going, which you know, after a, after 50 years of trying, he still has, or he's now dead, but uh, never accomplished. Yeah, these were more sort of anecdotal ones that not not any um, of any real significance, just the kind of thing that would that a, a young kid would remember. One was my grandfather's house in Havana was was a great house, had two pools, a saltwater pool, freshwater pool, and it was on the Caribbean. So the backyard was these pools. Uh, tennis courts and then this the, the you know literally the, the 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 Caribbean so we would sometimes fish off of the our out of our backyard I was like in four years old so I'm not gonna do be doing very well so I was there with my uncle and I I snagged something I didn't know what it was I tried to bring it up had trouble I'm, again being four years old so he helps me we bring it up and it was actually an octopus 
<laughs> so we bring the octopus up onto the you know the tile uh, uh floor which was you know beautiful my grandfather's house my mother's looking at this from the house and as we're I'm talking about it with my uncle. All of a sudden, the octopus starts letting out ink, which is its defense, me you know, mechanism. So now there's ink going all over this white tile floor, and my mother yells, "Dios te libre, may God free you." She was pissed, and I'm thinking, "How do you get the ink back into the octopus? It's kind of like toothpaste. You're kind of screwed." At that point. Or how do you get it out of the white marble that your mother right. was so proud of? That is so cool. Imagine that house today, Philly. That's a that's a hundred million dollar house on the Caribbean, salt water, yeah. fresh water, right? <laughs> yeah, no, awesome. it was fun. But not to 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 jump ahead, but one of the questions I'm sure in the back of your head is, well, is the ink still on the pool? What Just, happened to the ink, Alvaro? What happened um, to that squid and that ink? It's a gift. Yeah. So he gave me a bottle of Havana rum and then essentially my airplane tickets to go to Havana went back to my grandfather's house and I checked for the ink. It was gone. <laughs> <laughs> was the house still there? House, it was a hotel. And this writer felt very awkward because it was going to be like, we, you know, we're going to go to my home, which I haven't seen in 40 years. It was, obviously it was emotional for me. And he's a, he's a great guy, very sensitive. And he's thinking this is going to be tough on Alvaro, you know, what, what should I do, et cetera. So we pull it, we walk into the, to the house and there's a bar and he comes up and he goes, let me buy you a, a drink at your grandfather's bar. And, you know, we all will start laughing, et cetera. He then put that in his book. It's called Pitching to Fidel by S.L. Price. Was there, was there any danger for you going back? My mother was, was concerned there were awkward moments when um, when they looked at my passport when I literally arrived. I mean, one of the most amazing things was just like literally stepping because you there was no jetway. You stepped down on the ground. When I hit the ground, it just hit me that, oh, my God, I've been talking about Cuba and its relationship, my identity, essentially, as a Cuban my entire life. And to the point where it was almost like a story I was telling versus a reality. As my foot hit the ground, I was like, I'm actually hitting, you know, Cuban soil. And it was it was just emotionally amazing for me. We walk into to with our passports. I show them my passport and there's this woman in fatigues with a machine gun and she looks at it and then she goes, you know, essentially, "Oh my baby." She goes, "You were born here." And then she goes, "Let me give you a hug." So she gives me this big hug with the machine gun butt in my ribs. <laughs> What's yeah. interesting to me is growing up with you guys, um, <clears throat> as kids, we were still adapting to life too. So what was what was brand new for you was essentially brand new for us also with the obvious exceptions of the first four or five years of your life and how that affected your, your new and ongoing life. But it's funny to think that you and my brother Neil went to school together in first grade, is that when you arrived or kindergarten? Kindergarten, yeah. So it was new to both of you at that time. The yeah. United States was new to you, but school was new to both of you at the same time. So, yeah. No, and we assimilated very quickly. Oh, yeah, you did. You know, I, I didn't speak English when I arrived within. I mean, I don't remember any um, any transition issues at all. And we were um, in fact, we were welcome. The nuns. At, at where we went to, 
uh, parochial school, St. Joseph's in Bronxville, um, they, I remember, I think it was in uh, second grade teacher insisted that like once a week we would say the Hail Mary in Spanish. And so it was something to be proud of as opposed to something you tried to hide, which, you know, some immigrants, unfortunately, have that experience. We won the lotto six different ways. Um, well, you were you guys were accepted right away. As far as as I know, I didn't ever see any kind of, uh, you know, prejudice or snootiness towards yeah. towards your family. No, if anything, it was it was the opposite. It was, you know, people were uh, incredibly gracious, welcoming and and you know, love the story. I was lucky enough to live four houses away. So the, the actual reason we ended up in Bronxville is that his, the ink supplier for the magazines in Cuba lived in Bronxville. When we escaped, uh, a guy from international paper took us to Canada to sort of wait out to make sure there wasn't people following us uh, and, and have a certain amount of time evolved before we actually went back to the United States where Castro's people would know would you know was our final destination so after six months we went back and uh there was a, a family called the Leckies uh that lived uh not too far from uh Billy's uh, second house in, Bron in Bronxville Mr. Leckie was my dad's ink supplier so it was really just that just following connections that uh, we ended up in uh, in Bronxville as opposed to uh, Southwest 8th Street in Miami. <laughs> Who's the most interesting person you ever played golf with? I could tell you the, the funniest guy that I wouldn't have expected, um, which was Brett Favre uh, at a Pro-Am. The most uh, sort of down-to-earth uh, guy was uh, Johnny Miller. That must have been uh, a treat. And we, yeah, we played at Pebble Beach and this, the, the story there was on eight. We, you know, we go over that big chasm. We had, I think I was probably on my third shot. He was on his first, who knows, but we're up there and I, and I had just started playing golf. So I, you know, it's, it's a, it's a terrifying shot to begin with. And, um, and I asked him, or I, I'm sitting there trying to figure out what to hit and whatever the club that I should be hitting, I had no confidence in. So I was thinking, all right. And it's embarrassing. And, you know, you're supposedly, a, you know, an athlete and and with Johnny Miller. But then he said, he goes, OK, now what you're going to do here is just like no, reading my mind what it is that I was terrified. He goes, like, get your ugly club. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, what's an ugly club? And then he goes, the club you have the most confidence in. And for me at that time, it was like a seven wood. Uh, despite being a poor golfer, that was one club that I, no matter what, I could always, I could pretty much count on it. And I think it was more club than I needed, but he said, I don't care, hit that club. And sure enough, I hit it. I think I might've hit it slightly over the green, but it was over. And it was, you know, it was a great sort of piece of advice that to this day, clearly I've never sort of forgotten. And he was just that sort of fun, matter of fact, didn't give me a hard time. Just get your ugly club and, and, and whack it. First PGA was at Sirenoy. I thought it was 16. Sirenoy's uh, most instrumental pro was a guy named Tom Kerrigan. He was there for 50 years, and he was instrumental in starting the PGA Tour and really the beginnings of the Ryder Cup uh, when, when he and a bunch of other pros from the United States went over and played some pros in England, probably in the 20s. But, but Kerrigan was uh, 
Still has the course record there, 61. He shot it on June 18, 1941, I think, maybe 43. And one of the guys playing with him, a guy named Patsy Maselli, who was an assistant pro at Simon Roy when I was a kid, played with him that day that he shot 61. He said Kerrigan missed two or three, three or four footers that day. He said, wow. of course, he made some bombs too, but 61, and that, that record still holds up. Movie maker, favorite movie, favorite 10 movies. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say Hitchcock, you know, is something that is, transcended you know I, I loved him when I was 15 and I love him now it's in keeping with my current job uh, danger <laughs> yeah well Hitchcock liked to flirt with the dangerous stuff climbing <laughs> around on Mount Rushmore and things like that a lot of the big actors from back then they, I mean they had the handsome guys too you know Clark Gables or Cary Grants but if you think about the Bogart Cagney and Edward G. Robinson those guys were you know they were men, but they, you know, they weren't pin, yeah. you know, pinup guys. They but, weren't uh, Brad Pitts. So today, in today's movies, I'm always glad to see when a guy, and I would include Brad Pitt in this, is handsome, but he's also a good actor. Yeah. You know, some some of them aren't such good actors. They just play themselves in all the movies, and the scripts are written that way, and they're enjoyable. But Brad Pitt, I think, can actually play different kinds of characters. Billy can probably name everybody in this picture. I can name Claire Trevor. And then uh, Robinson's to the left. Bo Barron. Bogart's in the foreground and Bacall over there. Who is the older actor? Um, Lionel Barrymore. Lionel Barrymore. Who is the guy in the back? He was a character actor. You must remember and His him. name is uh, Gomez. Uh, I forget. It's Thomas Gomez. Stable. The guy yeah. on the right with the hat, I don't know what his name was, but he's a really good character in that movie. But if there was any 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 emotion you would you would um, I would use to characterize or or feelings that I have about my life, it would be gratitude. Um, because you know, as I tell my kids, you, you've won lotto ten times before you were born, um, and you know where they were born, who they were born from. They have loving parents. You're they're they're smart. They're you know attract on and on and on. And, uh, you know, similarly blessed. Uh, uh, so when people think, oh, my gosh, you know, you're immigrants from Cuba, you came under duress. Yes, but I was totally unaware of it. My parents um, uh, protected me from from any, you know, negative experiences. And after that, it's been, you know, one, you know, one lucky thing to <laughs> to another and obviously we all have ups and downs in our lives things don't go your way that you were totally counting on etc when you take i i in my case you, you take the a summary of the of all of it and it's there's just so much so much to be you know grateful for and spending time talking with you guys today um just you know puts an exclamation point on that because uh you mm -hmm. know all of these stories remind me just how much fun i've had and then how grateful i am at bedtime growing up, I would say to them every night, you're having a wonderful childhood in case they ever ended up on a talk show. But would you be willing to stake 10 of the best putters at Siwanoi against 10 putters from Wingfoot? Play a course somewhere, a few holes at Siwanoi and a few holes at Wingfoot and see who comes up the winner? If the uh, if the Siwanoi guys were allowed to drink before the tournament, I would. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Why are you laughing? 
Well, at least we have the laugh to add at the end. <laughs> right. We're, we've gone from 12 handicaps at this to 19 handicaps in just a week. <laughs> that, that's what happened. Somebody changed my grip, and the next thing you know, I can't do the podcast anymore. I felt like I was in the first row of the uh, first pew at church right during the sermon. <laughs> and your brother was poking my you. Brother, my brother was making me laugh. Thanks for joining Billy us Casper. today. Billy Horner. We really appreciate your Double feedback. Indemnity. And please Marky. subscribe to Two the show. Hit them hard. Job. And hit them off. That's 36 holes.